You know, it's interesting, uh, the last two songs that we sang um, were Raise a Hallelujah and This is How I Fight My Battles. And it's interesting because we, we fight our battles by raising a hallelujah. That's how we get through the battle, right? By giving glory to God, by celebrating and having joy for what God has done and is doing in our lives. But the problem with the song was we sang, I want to raise a hallelujah, Brandon, but I didn't hear a lot of raising of hallelujahs in the actual song from our people. And so let's practice, just so y'all are ready, next time you go through a battle, you know what to do. You want to try? Okay. So this is really how we fight our battles. When we're going through the battle, there's some things about Jesus that we remember, and those things are to uh, be a catalyst in our hearts, our minds, uh, for us to raise a hallelujah in the middle of the battle. And that's how we fight the battle. So we have a God who loves us, a God who sent His only Son to die on a cross for our sins. His blood was poured out on that cross as an atonement for our sins against God. And and He gives us this beautiful opportunity to turn from sin and trust in Him and receive God's forgiveness. Hallelujah. That same Jesus who died on the cross was buried in the ground... And on the third day, he rose again, conquering death and sin and Satan. Hallelujah. That same Jesus has promised to be with us until the end of the age. That same Jesus walks with you through your darkest valley, through your most difficult addiction, through a divorce, through a disease, through difficulties and depression in life. That same Jesus is always, always, always with you. Hallelujah. And that same Jesus is coming back again. It's not just a philosophy or an idea. That Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. And one day when the Father tells him, you go back down and you get your bride and you bring him up here, Jesus is coming back for you and for me. Hallelujah. That's how we raise a hallelujah. That's the Jesus we serve. Now church, listen, we're going to need to to know how to praise our God, to know how to raise a hallelujah in the very near future because I think we as the church are facing difficult times. I don't don't think things are going to get easier for us. I think they're going to get more difficult. And the reason I think that is because that's what God said would happen. And we're going to talk about that today. The next... uh, the next phase in our, our series, How Does God Grow His Church? In the byproduct series, How Does God Grow His Church? He, he grows His church through persecution. If you weren't able to join us uh, a few months ago, we, we did a series on persecution, um, and we worked through a couple books by um, an international missionary named Nick Ripkin, and he talked about uh, two books, The Insanity of God, The Insanity of Obedience, And he talked about how God grows his church through persecution all around the world. He told a very unique and interesting story about a man who was in uh, behind the Iron Curtain in a communist country that did not want the gospel to be preached. And this man was not a pastor. Um, 
He didn't consider himself anything special. He had become a believer and was simply spending time with his family at home, sharing the gospel with them, teaching them from the Bible. And before he knew it, uh, God started sending more people to his little house. And before he knew that, knew it, it was it was a church. He had a house church, and and he just shared from Scripture what he knew, and that's what he did. And over time, he 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 received the attention of the authorities who did not want the gospel to be preached, did not want people. Uh, learning about Jesus, and so they hauled him away and put him in a prison. And that man was in not, it wasn't like an American prison with three square meals a day and, you know, cable TV and a, a weight room. This was a horrible place where people went to die. And in his prison cell, he, he was so in love with Jesus. His life had been so radically transformed by Jesus that he would wake up every morning when the sun would come up and he would sing a song of praise to God, greeting the sun and the day. He called it his love song, his song of worship. And he would write down little bits and pieces of Scripture on toilet paper, scraps of paper, whatever he had, and he would lick it and put it up on the concrete wall. And as he would sing at the beginning of his, his imprisonment, the other, uh, the other prisoners would yell at him, scream obscenities at him, throw things at him. And yet every day he got up and he sang to God because that's what God called him to do. And he did that in between the beatings he received from the prison guards. They would come in and look for these little pieces of Scripture. And if they found them, they would take them away and beat him, throw him back in his cell. And he would do the same thing the next day and the day after that and the day after that because Jesus radically changed his life. Something amazing happened at the end of his imprisonment. The guards brought him out and they said, you, you must turn away from Jesus or we're going to kill you. And his answer was, I'd rather die than turn away from Jesus. And they threatened him and beat him and threw him back in his jail cell and came out the next day. And the next day they brought him out. And he thought that was the end for him. And so as they threatened him, he stood out in front of the rest of the prisoners and started to sing his song of worship to God. And slowly the other men came to the edges of their cells and started to sing along with him. And just his act of obedience to worship God had in fact, infiltrated the hearts of, of the men of that prison. The power of God was so strong upon him that the, the guards moved away from him and asked him, who are you? Shortly after that, he would be released from his prison cell to go and lead a movement in his own country for the gospel. And God used that. That happened because of his obedience to stand and proclaim God's glory in the midst of persecution. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 4, as we continue on through the book of Acts. The words will be on the screen. You can open up your Bible. If you don't have one of these, this is the book of Acts. In the translation I preach from on Sunday mornings, you can get one out front. And so first we're going to talk about the consequence of proclamation or the proclamation of the gospel is persecution. The consequence of proclaiming the gospel is persecution. Acts chapter 4 beginning verse 1 says this, While they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So if you had been here in previous weeks, 
Peter and John approach the temple 3 p.m., the time or the hour of prayer. They see a man there at the gate begging for money. He's unable to walk. Uh, they walk up to him. He asks for money. Peter says, I don't have any money, but I got something better for you. I've got everything that I have I'm going to give to you. Rise and walk. And in that moment, the man is healed by the power and through the name of Jesus Christ. So what happens after that is the religious leaders, they're watching. Peter then immediately uses this healing as a sign of the power of Jesus, and he begins to share the gospel. And so he tells all these people, thousands gathered around in the temple grounds about who Jesus is, and look at this healed man standing next to me. He's healed because of faith in Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. The consequence of him proclaiming the gospel is what we're going to read about today. The, the, the healing that he did produced quite a stir. Even the religious leaders noticed something had happened. And, and it says in the first two verses here that the officials are angry for two reasons. The first reason is that these guys were teaching the people. Peter and John were two of the disciples. They weren't trained in any special way. They were fishermen. They weren't theologians. They weren't from the appropriate family line. They weren't part of the religious elite. So the religious leaders looked at them and thought, who are you to be teaching us and our people? They thought, these are our people. You can't teach them. So they're mad about that. The second thing they're mad about is that they're teaching, as the text says, they're teaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that in itself makes them angry for two reasons. The first one is they're Sadducees. They're a sect of Judaism that didn't believe in the resurrection. And so they're mad about this. They believe they're teaching something false. Second, they're mad because these guys are teaching that this man, Jesus from Nazareth, the one that died on the cross, they're teaching that he didn't stay dead, that he rose from the dead. And so they're mad about that too. Look at verse 3. So they seized them and took them into custody until the next day since it was already evening. So the religious leaders do the only thing they know what to do, and that's to arrest them and silence their testimony about Jesus. You know, Jesus warned us that this was going to happen. The disciples knew that this was coming. We know that this is coming in a passage. Uh, it's Luke chapter 12, uh, uh, chapter 21, verse 12. I think we can get that up on the screen. Luke 21, verse 12. There it is. Let's just look at verse 12 first. It says, but before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. So Jesus is saying, before the end has come, before Jesus is going to return... My people, Jesus' people, are going to endure persecution. They will hand you over to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. Jesus said this was going to happen, and now it's happening. I'm sure the disciples were worried, and I'm sure that believers in other countries that go through the same thing, I'm sure that they're worried as well. But Jesus' proclamation here, his prophecy about what will happen to us, also comes with a promise. And it's, it's given in uh, Matthew chapter 16. I think we got that one next. Matthew chapter 16. And I also say to you that you are Peter. He's talking to his disciple Peter. 
And on this rock, that's on Jesus and the foundation that he lays, I will build my church. Listen, church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. What is that promise from Jesus? What's he saying? Well, in the Luke passage, he says, listen, you're going to have faith in me. You're going to proclaim the gospel in me. The world isn't going to like that. And so what they're going to do is they're going to arrest you. You're going to stand before authorities like governors, religious leaders, presidents. You're going to stand before them. And you're going to be persecuted. But the promise is given in Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus says, don't worry about that. Listen, I'm going to build my church. Not even Satan himself and all of his demons, not even the evil world system that he uh, directs and guides, none of that will keep the church from growing. So who's in charge? God is. And what's amazing, what we're going to see is and what has been demonstrated throughout history is that God grows his church through persecution. So what the enemy intends for persecution to do is to stifle the gospel, to, to cause us believers to keep our mouths shut and to kill the movement of Christianity. Instead, what God often does, by taking what the enemy intends for evil and making it good, what he does is he takes persecution and he uses it to multiply and grow his church. And that's what he's going to do in this text. That's what he does here in our lives. And so look at verse 4. But many of those who heard the message believed. So back in verse 3, the disciples had been arrested they're now put away safely where no one can hear them. The consequence of the healing and their proclamation of the gospel is verse 4. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. That's just men. That's not counting women and children. Thousands are saved in this moment. Why are they saved? Why is this growth happening? Look back at, at Luke chapter 21, verses, 20, or verses 12 and 13 that we just read. Go to 13, guys. We're going to be arrested. Verse 13, this will give you an opportunity to bear witness. So what does persecution do in the life of the Christian? It gives you an opportunity to bear witness about Jesus. Sometimes it has become very easy for us to become what I call go-along, get-along Christians. What's a go-along, get-along Christian? Well, a go-along, get-along Christian goes along with popular culture, laws, whether they're biblical or not, what other people believe and care about them. They go along with it. And they do that because they want to get along with everybody else. They don't want to stand out. They don't want to be persecuted. They don't want to be fired from their jobs or persecuted by their own family and friends. Our calling from Jesus is the opposite of that. The challenge for us today, just looking at these first four verses of this text, and what I want you to think about when you leave this place today, is am I a go-along, get-along Christian? Am I, go am I going along with pop culture to get along with everybody as opposed to standing for the gospel? 
Am I willing to give up everything that I love and hold dear, everything that I own, everything that I hope to achieve in this world for the cause of Christ? Jesus didn't call us to be go-along, get-along Christians. All right, let's look at the next part of the text. The good news is, is there's power in the name of Jesus. Amen? There's power in the name of Jesus. All right, look at verse 5. The next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. All right, so this is a big deal. All the big muckety-mucks are coming to town. Something's happened. We all got to get together. We got to decide what we're going to do about this. This is like a meeting to decide how they're going to get rid of this Christian movement because it threatens their power. And so you have the high priests. You have uh, the, the past high priest, Annas, and then Caiaphas is the current high priest. You have all the important religious leaders and of representing various families in Jerusalem. They're all gathered together. And they're going to talk about what to do about these guys. By this time, Christianity has reached over 8,000 people. I think it's well above that, but at least 8,000 men had been saved. So it's probably double or triple that, probably. So this is a genuine movement. These guys, these guys got to figure out what they're going to do about this. All right, look at verse 7. After they, after they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them. By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. Remember, that man was healed not just of his infirmities with his legs. It said he was completely healed. He didn't even have a cold after they were done with him. He was in perfect health. And so, these guys bring them in before all of these religious leaders, and they're going to ask them about what's going on. They're testing them. Jesus tells us in Luke 12, 12, which I think we have next year, what we're supposed to do when we encounter persecution. He says, For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what must be said. What did the text say happened to Peter when he stood before the, uh, the uh, religious leaders in verse 8? Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the fulfillment of Jesus' promise. I've also heard from the lips of people in my presence that have stood before rulers and leaders that same promise fulfilled. Unsure of what they were going to do not knowing if they would have all the answers. Being filled in that moment, being illuminated, being um, given answers, and proclaiming the gospel by and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what happens to Peter. So Peter gives this brilliant answer to these guys. First thing he says, he doesn't answer their question. He pulls like a classic Jesus on them, right? 
So you remember Jesus when he walked on this earth, the, the Pharisees and religious leaders, who, by the way, did the same thing to him when he healed someone on the Sabbath. I don't know if you remember that. Anyway, Peter stands before them. They ask them, by, by what name and, and authority are you, did you do this? In classic Jesus uh, terms, Peter stands before them and said, so just to be sure that we're all on the same page, we're on trial today because I healed my Jewish brother who has been paralyzed or unable to walk uh, since birth. Just so let's clear that up and make sure we're all together on this. I'm here today because this guy who couldn't walk, he can now walk. That's why I'm here. And they don't know what to say. This wasn't a meeting held in, in, in secret. There, there are probably people gathered around listening to what they have to say. And the evidence of what happened is this man standing in their midst who was once unable to walk and work and even worship. Now his life's been restored. And so Peter says, why am I on trial? Oh, it's, I'm on trial because this man's been healed. Okay, we just want to establish that. Now he's going to answer to them, how did this happen? Well, it happened in the name and by the authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the man from Nazareth, you remember him? The one that you hung on a cross? The one that you sent to die? That one? Yeah, the Messiah, that's him. The one who rose from the dead? That's him. That's the name and by whose authority we did this. Peter continues in, in verses 11 and 12. He's going to quote Psalm 118. Let's read that. It says, Then Jesus, this Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. This is the, the quote from the Psalm passage. And then verse 12 continues. There is, no, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. So Peter is identifying the religious leaders with the builders of the psalm text. Now, they believed that they were the builders. And so he's very, very clearly, succinctly, pointedly telling them, you're the builders of Psalm 118. And they would have agreed that they are, in fact, the builders. They were the builders because they helped rebuild the temple. They considered themselves to be the builders because they're the ones that built the Jewish faith up. They're the ones that taught the people the Word of God and oversaw their worship. They're the builders. But Peter's saying, listen, you are the builders. But you're the builders of Psalm 118. You're the ones who rejected the cornerstone. Now, who's the cornerstone? Jesus. Jesus is the one upon which our faith is built. He's the one that they rejected. Peter's not make, making any friends, right? This isn't a soft sermon. He's laying the hammer down. You guys killed him. You guys rejected him. By the way, he's the Messiah that God sent. And then he continues. He doesn't back down. Not one iota. There's no other name under heaven through which we can achieve and receive salvation from God. Jesus is the only way. Now, Peter quotes uh, Psalm 118. He doesn't back away from the truth. Peter's relationship with Jesus radically changed his life, right? It had to have radically changed his life. 
This man stood up in front of all the most important, most powerful people in his life and proclaimed the gospel. Told them that they were sinners, that they needed Jesus, that the one whom they rejected was the one they now needed to receive by faith. His life was radically changed. The question I have for you today is, has your life been radically changed by Jesus? Think about your relationship with him. Has there been that moment in your life when you turn from your sin and receive Jesus as Lord and Savior? Has, have you had that opportunity to be born again and to be saved? And if you haven't, in a moment we're going to have uh, an invitation. I want you to come down so I can pray with you. And I can talk to you about how you can be saved. Second, for all of you in here who are believers, has your relationship with Jesus radically changed your life to the point where you would be willing to stand for the truth of the gospel in the midst of persecution? That's a tough question, right? Am I willing to stand for the gospel in the midst of persecution? The Bible says that persecution is coming. It is, in fact, already here today. And I'm sure you've experienced maybe even subtle effects of persecution. Like being worried or afraid to share the gospel. Being worried or afraid to stand up for biblical truth. Maybe you have conversations with people over coffee and you really disagree with what they're saying, but you're afraid to tell them you disagree or why you disagree. Those are opportunities for you to stand for the truth of the gospel, to share the truth of the Word of God in love. And who knows how God would use that. In his books, in which Nick Ripkin studies persecution all around the world, he spent most of his time behind the Iron Curtain in countries that were infiltrated and infected with communism. And some of those countries used to have vibrant faith and in, in uh, followers of Jesus. And, and he talks about it in these interviews with these people who, who were kind of the, the, the last remaining Christians behind the Iron Curtain. They had no Bibles. They had no churches to attend because it was illegal. And he said, in that, that persecution was, was quite insidious. In many of those places, they didn't come through and chop everybody who believed in Jesus. They didn't come through and chop their heads off. They didn't come through and burn their houses down. They just made it inconvenient to be a Christian. They started by taking away the Bible, by, by stopping the print of the Word of God. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Or if it hits close to home for you. They started by making it illegal to make the Word of God, to, to print it, to sell it. And then what they did after that was then they started to gather the Word of God up. Not by taking it from people, but just by collecting it and burning it. And then after that, then, then they worked through their public school systems 
And they started to tell the kids in the public school system that Jesus isn't real. And to follow him would be foolish. That's a fairy tale, they would say. They would tell the kids that, well, your parents believe that, but that's something from their age. It's archaic. It's not true. Don't listen to your parents. Listen to our more advanced science. And they infected the hearts and the minds of the next generation of children. Then after that, they threatened parents. And the the generation of people that still believed in Jesus telling them, you know, you can believe in Jesus, but you just can't tell anybody about him. You can't proselytize. You can't go out on the streets. In fact, if we hear that you're telling people about him, we're going to take away your job and your land. We're going to take away the things you hold dear. What that did was that caused family to turn against family. Mothers and fathers would be turned in by their own kids and put in jail. In one generation, the communist movement obliterated Christianity in entire countries. Now, we're not living in a communist nation, praise the Lord. But some of those same things are being used by the enemy in this country. The challenge for us is not to stand down because the enemy, Satan, uses above all things silence to stop the growth of Christianity and the proclamation of the gospel. Silencing you and I through various forms of persecution. Some are are very, very um, clear, very abrupt, like Killing people and others are very subtle, like what happened in many of those communist countries. The end is the same. The enemy has won when our mouths have been shut and we fail to proclaim the gospel. That's what they're trying to do here to Peter. I wonder what Peter did in response to that. What we're going to learn next is persecution always includes the silencing of proclamation. All right, look at verse 13. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with him, they had nothing to say in opposition. They're like, who are these guys? How do they stand and speak with such authority, with such gravitas? Well, if you look at the text, the answer is because they had been with who? With Jesus. They were able to stand and preach with authority because they walked with Jesus, because they were uh, radically changed by Jesus and through the indwelling of His Holy Spirit. These untrained, unknown men. What do we learn? His power is manifested in our weakness. Jesus' power is manifested in your weakness. It's not necessarily about what you know or who you know about what you've done. It's about your faith in Jesus. Your willingness to stand for Him. 
They continue in verse 15. After they had ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves. So these guys are going to try and figure out what to do next. What are we supposed to do? Saying, what should we do with these men? For an obvious sign has been done through them, clear to everyone living in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. There's the enemy Satan. He's up to his old tricks. They don't know what to do to them. They, they know they can't kill them because everyone's seen what happened with his man being healed. So they're going to threaten them. They're going to use subtle persecution. They rejected the gospel. Now they're going to use their considerable political power to silence Peter and John. Now listen, it's important for us not to read over and, and misunderstand what's going to happen when they're threatening them. These guys had the power to strip Peter and John of all that they owned, of their, their lands, their family, their opportunity to come to the temple, their opportunity to work. They could strip them of everything they held dear. And that's what they're going to try and do. Look at verse 18. So they called for them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. I love their answer. Verse 19. Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you have to decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Peter and John's response is amazing. It's amazing. They just flip the tables on these guys. They tell them, you need to, you need to stop preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. Peter and John's answer, all right, all right. I'm going to let you decide what I'm supposed to do. Am I supposed to follow you or follow God? I'm going to follow God. That's what they say. I'm going to do what God's called me to to do because he's God you're not God you judge for yourself what you think we're supposed to do we're supposed to be quiet we're supposed to preach the word well what did Jesus say about this we got we got a text here in Matthew chapter 10 verses 24 to 31 let me read this to you it says a disciple is not above his teacher or a slave above his master let's go to the next one guys it is enough for a disciple to become like his teacher and a slave like his master. If they called the head of the house Beelzebul, that's what they called Jesus, how much more the members of his household. Therefore, don't be afraid of them since there's nothing covered that won't be uncovered and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. What you hear in a whisper, proclaim on the housetops. Don't fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him, that's God, who is able to destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. But even the hairs on your head have been counted, so don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows." If God's called you to stand in front of a governor or a president 
or a mayor or a co-worker for the gospel, your life is in the hands of God and you will live through that and live as long as God's called you to live as you stand and proclaim the gospel. You cannot add one day to your life and no one can take one day away from your life. So you judge for yourself. Is it better to obey man or to obey God? And that's a decision that every one of us has to make. 21 and 22, after threatening, or 21 22 continues, says, after threatening them further, they released them. They found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done, for this sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. I'm just going to tell you, Peter and John, according to church history, were both murdered for their faith. They didn't like sail away and, and live this wonderful, happy life in retirement. They were both brutally murdered for following Jesus and proclaiming the gospel. So we have an opportunity to respond to what God's shown us in His Word. God grows His church through persecution. Have you turned from sin and trusted in Jesus? If you have not, in just a moment, everyone in here is going to be asked to stand and we're going to sing a song together and worship. We call this our invitation. If you haven't yet received Jesus, come forward. Turn from your sin and trust in Him as your Lord and Savior. If you have, I wonder if you'll take a stand for Jesus. You can't decide to stand for Jesus when you're in the fire. You got to decide today. You got to make that decision every day. Today I stand for Jesus. Whatever happens in the rest of my day, today I'm going to stand for him. And then you got to wake up the next day and you got to say, Today I'm going to stand for him. And then you've got to wake up the next day and say, Today I'm going to stand for him. You've got to declare day by day, moment by moment, breath by breath, that I am going to stand for Jesus. No one will silence my voice in proclaiming the gospel. And you take that declaration with you into the lion's den. You take Jesus' promises with you in front of governors and presidents and senators, co-workers, bosses at work. You take it with you. I'll always be with you. I'm never going to forsake you. I'll be with you to the end of the age. When it's time for you to give a defense, my spirit will give you the words to say. And so today, as you stand, everyone stand, please. Are you ready to take a step of faith and stand for the gospel? The altar is going to be open if you want to come and pray and, and give that over to the Lord. You can do that at your seat as well. Or if you want to come and make a decision today, I'll be here. Whatever it is, the call is clear. Stand for Jesus. Prepare for the fight. God grows his church through persecution. And God wants to grow his church through you. Heavenly Father, I pray over this time of invitation, whatever your spirit is doing in each individual heart, I pray that they would take a stand for you. For some, the stand is to 
literally stand, take a step out of that pew and come forward. And others, it's a stand among family members to tell them about Jesus. It's a stand at work. It's a, it's a stand to do what's right and biblical in their life. Whatever it is, help us not to leave this moment without making the decision you've called us to declare. In Jesus' name I pray.